Welcome to GLAD, your spatial fix for geography, life, and data. This podcast is brought to you by the Science of Cities and Regions program at the Alan Turing Institute. I'm Danny, your host for today, albeit briefly. Usually, Levi, Hiya. Rachel, Hello. and I join you from our studios at the British Library. But today, we're on holiday, so instead we're doing something different. Today, we're reaching back into the vault to our sad interviews to bring you one of our past guests, Luke Anselin, Stein Feiler, Distinguished Service Professor of Sociology, that is quite a mouthful, at the University of Chicago. In this conversation, we talked about his life, times, and career, and also learned a little bit about who he would invite to a sad dinner party. And hey, if you're curious about the sad interviews, check out our Spatial Analytics and Data YouTube channel for the full back catalog. And a quick technical note. We recorded this interview at the height of a global pandemic, from home, while we usually record GLAD from our studios in the British Library. So we're sorry for any issues with our audio quality. We hope we've gotten better since this. With that, we'll leave you with Luke, and we're glad you're here. Hello, everybody. Uh, thank you for joining us uh, today. My name is Emmanuel Tarnos from the University of Bristol. And I'm very happy to welcome you to this sad interview with Luke Anselin. Throughout the years, spatial analytics and data have been nurtured by path-breaking scholars from a variety of backgrounds. But who are these people? What reflections do they have on their experience? How have spatial analytics and data changed? And what is their future? This is exactly what SAT, the interview series, is exposing. It is a long form informal conversation with influencers of our generation of spatial analytics and data for their insights on the evolution and the revolutions of the field. It is a new partnership between the Royal Geographical Society through the Quantitative Methods Research Group and the Spatial Analytics and Data Seminar Series, which are brought to you by Newcastle University Bristol University, and the Alan Turing Institute. Today, we're very excited to have with us, to have with us Professor Luke Anselm. Luke is a Stein Freiler Distinguished Service Professor of Sociology at the University of Chicago, where he founded and directs the Center for Spatial Data Science. Luke is one of the principal developers of the field of spatial econometrics, his work spans, spans political science, sociology, economics, statistics, and urban studies. He was elected to the US National Academy of Science in 2008 and the American Academy of Arts and Science in 2011. We have with us, with us that together three excellent interviewees, Dr. Levi Wolf from the University of Bristol, Dr. Dani Arribaspel from the University of Liverpool and Professor Rachel Franklin from Newcastle University. They are going to interrogate Luke for 15 minutes each. And at the end, we're going to open the floor for questions from you guys. And without any further delay, I'm going to hand now to my colleague, Levi Wolf. Great. Thanks, Emmanuel. I am really interested in sort of the path and the history that you've taken, Luke, to be where you are now. But first, how's it going? Good morning. It's great. Why is this called sad? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's uh, it's been a hell of a year. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, I mean, well, spatial analytics, right? Uh, I guess a yeah. term first came up from the Barry and Marble book way back when. But um, yeah, we, we thought it would be would be fitting. Uh, what are you working on right now? Uh, well, as I said the other day, you know, this is the pandemic. Isn't that one long vacation? Has <laughs> <laughs> uh, it been? Um, it's been great, actually. I've been doing a lot of work on Geoda. The, with Jean Lee, you know, designing, thinking about the future of Geoda mostly, you know, we, we put the latest version together with wrappers for Python and R, PyGeoda, RGeoda. Mm -hmm. Shun is working on a wrapper for, it's not really a wrapper for a, a, a post GIS integration, post Geoda, wow. yeah. which is coming soon. And so related to that, there's always little things I get interested in, little refinements of um, different types of local cluster analyses, spatially constrained clustering. Sure. And uh, in spatially, not so much, I don't work in spatial econometrics per se so much anymore, but mm -hmm. I'm still very interested in this issue of um, spatial regimes and how sure. you can endogenize spatial regime so let the data determine the regimes rather than setting them a priori so you know keeping yeah. busy <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a lot for sure you started off teaching economics in a in a high school right um and then made this decision to to move to the u.s can you walk me through a little bit about why i moved to the u.s what what drew you uh over well, so I I finished my uh, undergraduate and was doing a one-year, four-plus-one master's in econometrics and operations research at the Free University of Brussels. And um, I, had a, I had two jobs, actually. I was a part-time research assistant covering for somebody who uh, was in the army. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh who did their service and so i was working on a demographic project and then i also taught uh in a little private high school uh, that prepared uh, expats dutch expats for a, a general exam in the netherlands and that was microeconomics but mm -hmm. i had been in the states as an au pair actually in oh. my after my sophomore year I was about 19 years old. Um, I spent a summer in the U.S. and then the next year I went back. And so that kind of gave me the U.S. bug. And um, at the time, you know, the economic situation wasn't very good in Belgium or in Europe in general. Sure. And the way the, the university system worked at the time, it may still be the same, but at the time, it was basically a queue. So you had your spot in the queue and you had to wait till everybody in front of you had moved on or taken a position. And that queue was too long for me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and to so, wait. <laughs> yeah. My uncle was very influential in this. My uncle was an economist who was a planning professor. And he had been involved in the European Regional Science Conferences, and he had met Walter Eisart. And uh, I had started to read some of Eisart's stuff, uh, primarily stuff on uh, environmental modeling, which he worked on for a little while. And yeah. so that kind of convinced me I was going to give it a try. I applied for a fellowship in Belgium, and I got it, and then... Um, I, a one-year fellowship. So I applied sure. mostly to master's programs, but then Izard actually called me at home and encouraged <laughs> me to apply to the PhD program instead, 
wow. at Cornell, which I yeah, yeah. And so then they also gave me some money. So I, I was set, you know, I just took the jump and left, never sure. came back. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, being at Cornell at the time must have been a pretty dynamic scenario, right? There was all this kind of intense structure going on with ISARD. And uh, you mentioned Green as well, right? The author of the Econom Econometrics yeah. textbook. Can you talk a little bit about your your kind of time at Cornell and, and sort of what went into your kind of training and study there? Well, I think it was probably pretty unusual as a graduate program. How so? It took only three years. I had very much my mind made up what I wanted to do. Which was? And, which was you know, spatial econometrics. I had discovered <laughs> I that in uh, as an econometrician, not as a geographer mm -hmm. or any spatial person, you know. I, sure. uh, I mean, at the time when did spatial econometrics without ever looking at a map, which is, <laughs> uh, has changed, I should yeah, say. Totally. <laughs> uh, uh, I was debating between Penn and Cornell, and at the time, the Penn graduate program was very much in the mode of economic, economics graduate program. So they had all the required courses lined up, mm -hmm. whereas Cornell was the exact opposite. Cornell was not quite do whatever you want, but you basically had the structure where you set up a faculty committee, and then with that committee, you decide what it is you do, what courses you take or or not. I mean, I, sure. I took courses for one year, and then after that, it was all dissertation work and independent studies. Um, mm -hmm. And that was just perfect for me because I had, you know, a, a fairly defined idea of what I wanted to do. But of course, this wasn't really Isaac's thing. Sure. So in a way, he made me do a second dissertation. It never turned into a dissertation, but I, I was working on integrated multi-regional modeling, which some of my first papers dealt with that. Izard was working on a big uh, proposal to develop this kind of, you know, very 1970s type of view of the world of different systems sure. interconnected, you know, uh, input-output models, um, migration models, economic mm -hmm. impact models, location decision Modules. Sorry, they were like all different modules, all connecting, and uh, basically what we would call loose coupling. Sure, because sure. there's so many incompatibilities conceptually between these different models. Some are dynamic, some are static. Yeah, some are flows. You know, so all these different things needed to be interconnected, which was, I thought, very very interesting at the time. Sure, you know, you have to realize. This is punch card world, right? This is not, uh, forget about even interactive uh, monitors. Yeah. It was all type up your punch cards, put them in a box and submit them and come back the next day. Or maybe by that time, when I started out, it was the next day. By that time, it was a little <laughs> faster. Yeah. But still, you spend a lot of time in this uh, big operating room where you just waited your turn to put your batch into the machine and then you know uh, the printout came out and uh, sure. they had your name on the printout and they were all <laughs> in these different boxes it was it was a different yeah. world so far cry from the sort of interactive paradigm you've been working with in geoda right it's very very different right. very different very different <laughs> sure. but you know that that was the beginning and then you know in the 
in the beginning uh, of my, mm -hmm. if you can call it my career, I worked mostly on this multi-regional modeling stuff. Sure, sure. And it's after about a year that I then got back to the spatial stuff and then uh, started and then really focusing on that. Sure. Yes, indeed. Yeah. So moving on then a little bit from there, you, you know, you've, you've been at a lot of different institutions over the, t over the years, right? I think I was counting, you know, West Virginia and then Urbana. And then of course, you know, you went uh, Dallas, uh, Santa Barbara. Um, I guess through all those contexts, one of the biggest changes that, you know, you've talked about before is the move to Santa Barbara. And I think you put it as becoming a geographer. Can you talk to me a little bit about how you kind of made that transition and how it changed your thinking? Yeah, well, as I said, I had uh, originally, I was trained as an economist and an econometrician. So it's all about the equations and thinking of, you know, how you can bring space into the equation without ever looking at a map. And so when sure. um, Santa Barbara hired me, initially, uh, I, I didn't teach, teach spatial stuff at all. I taught multi-regional modeling and those kinds of things and sure. uh, urban geography and location theory. And, and though that, that basically what I taught at the time, mm -hmm. but, mm -hmm. um, you know, I had a very close contacts with Reg College Mm -hmm. who really was very influential. You know, uh, Mike Goodchild only came later. By that time, I was already a geographer. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. you know, in the it just showed me to to look at things differently. And sure. um, and I, by the time the technology was slowly changing, you know, we, I think UCSB was one of the first places that actually had ARC Info as an academic entity. And then, yeah. so the, the technology was changing very quickly. Sure. And um, so then I moved more and more towards the visualization part and the, the, the power of visualization and, and the power of exploratory data analysis before you do the actual equations. And, yeah. and so that has been kind of a, you know, a fundamental turnaround sure. in the way I approach things now. I, you know, I was trained, you know, as all economists are trained, you start with the model, you yeah. work out the equilibrium solutions or whatever they are, the dynamics, and then you try to translate that equation or set of equations somehow into data that you can collect and variables that you can stick onto them and then run the number cruncher and you're mm -hmm. done, right? So yeah. I completely changed and uh, started thinking about how you can visualize some of these concepts. And, sure. and I, uh, the way I approach this is when I didn't understand something is how could I make sense out of this for myself? And then translate that into eventually tools that other could use sure. as well you know the first well, tool space that was completely non-visual <laughs> but then uh, as soon as the technology was there we i tried to make it connecting with a map connecting with diff different graphs and making sure, it more sure. visual uh, kind of along that note of making sense of things uh, and, you know, building tools that allow others to make sense of things. Something I was really struck by um, throughout all of your different uh, moves and institutional affiliations and visits, you know, you've always been really involved in teaching in all the places you've been. It's 
pretty remarkable. Uh, even you know, teaching, work, visiting workshops at you know things like ICPSR um, or you know spatial econometric association kind of things. It's quite cool, you know. People people of that uh, level sometimes you know just buy out of teaching when they can and never do it when they uh, when when they could. Um, so, can you speak to me a little bit about how teaching has kind of influenced your perspective or uh, uh, I guess practice of doing research in that way? Well, I guess you know my parents were school teachers, so I kind of have it in my blood. I, I, you know, it's the crap. They always wanted they wanted me to be a school teacher. Basically, ah. I'm I'm basically a failure because I <laughs> did not become a school teacher. Yeah, <laughs> but, oh, um, no, I I always felt that it was uh, important to translate the you know, the, the methodological insights into something that people could actually use. And so part of that is the tools, but yeah. also the the support for the tools. So explaining things, trying to explain things, because I always put myself back where I was when I started approaching this. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, at the time, none of this was very intuitive. So how sure. can you make it more intuitive? How can you... Uh, get a, a a sense and, and in the end it's all about spatial thinking and mm -hmm. this is not something that come nat comes natural to many people so it's it really takes some little effort to start thinking about it things in terms of location interaction and then um, you know i've always enjoyed teaching um sure. When I early in my career, I had to teach all kinds of things, you know, like basically five different preps each year. I mean, it was wow. crazy, but it, it was just, you know, par for the course. Sure. And then uh, later is only when I could start focusing on mm -hmm. teaching spatial analysis, uh, spatial econometrics, you know, yeah. more even GIS, you know. Sure. Uh, and, and lately at the University of Chicago, you know, they have this uh, core curriculum, mm -hmm. which is, you know, one of their trademarks for their undergraduate education with a lot of requirements. It basically takes two years. And wow. um, yeah, it's it's a philosophy, you know, it's, yeah, it comes sure. from Humboldt. It's a way to do things. Uh, sure. Maybe not my way but it is what it is you know but <laughs> sure. i started a spatial analysis track in that oh, nice. and so i now teach incoming freshmen spatial thinking which is something i had never done before but yeah you know, well fantastic goes back stuff. to my high school days <laughs> <laughs> yeah geez well so speaking a little bit about how you would do things you've had a lot of opportunities to kind of build that uh, throughout your career. You've been founding director or managing director of quite a few different research institutes and uh, uh, different kinds of sort of teams around uh, around your field. So I, I was curious if you have any kind of insight or thought into, you know, when you're setting up a team or kind of how you how you design it or what you think about when you're when a team really works well. What, what What's your insight on that? Well, there was a bit of an evolution. The, the original lab at the University of Illinois was basically to support extramural funded research. Sure. So at the time, I happened to have a few grants, and so we needed people to work on these grants. And I've always been very, uh, you know, a believer in picking the right people. And once you have the right team, you know, you just it just kind of becomes automatic pilot you know you it doesn't sure. it doesn't involve that much i mean 
uh, it needs overall picture, but then it things just kind of take care of themselves. So I think that's really been the key is find the right people to, you know, form a group and, and be a real team and sure. everybody's on the same page. And it was always small enough that, you know, it wasn't, uh, it didn't become over overwhelming in terms of management, you know? Sure. The largest was probably when we had the Geoda Center at, at Arizona State, where it did kind of become a little bit overwhelming in terms of the number of people, the visitors, the uh, research grants we were managing at the time. That was uh, a little more management than I bargained for. But, <laughs> you know, sure. um, right now, the Center for, the, you know, for Spatial Data Science is a small group of people. You know, it's it's just a fantastic high energy. You know, they've always always been high energy, but I think that's a function of the people who are part of it. You know, yeah, just, yeah, that makes sense. So, in addition to the the process of building teams, my sort of last question: You have been to many different places and uh, sort of had a lot of different research experiences. Was there a plan for moving? between these different places? Was there sort of something that you were pursuing each time you made those moves? Or was it just kind of what fell into place at the time? There was no plan. <laughs> <laughs> was there not? <laughs> it, it was just, you know, it just happened. There were several moves that were partially push moves. Mm-hmm. You know, the uh, my first job was at Ohio State in the planning department. And right. I don't know if I ever told you this, but... It was quite about a lot of politics, and uh, here I was. I had just been approved for tenure. I didn't officially have tenure yet, and I was mm-hmm. made acting chair of the department, which a department that was completely split 50-50, so I couldn't wait to get out of there and sure. to Santa Barbara. That was uh, a good move. <laughs> but a lot of the other moves were just a serendipity. You know, somebody sure. says, you know, we would like, yeah, would you be interested in this? And, you know, so. Sure. Well, um, I think with that, I'll hand over to Danny to ask the next set of questions. Thanks, Levi. All right, look, so um, I'm going to jump back to the very early days of the punch cards and and then sort of re- retake it from there a little bit. I think one of the, well, you're probably known for many things in many different contexts, but probably one of the things that you're most known for is for your affiliate, your affiliation or your your effort and time put into developing software. And this is something that it's one of the biggest constants that you can see throughout your career. You were saying that from the very early days, you were punching cards or sending punch cards to to be processed overnight and then looking at the bug and, and reworking it. And you just started the interview today, actually, talking about the latest things you're working in Geoda and, and how you're excited about what, what's coming new. My first question it's really, it's, it's just getting you to talk about what got you into software, how you got interested, and and once you were interested, how or how, once you had some experience with that, which, given what, what computation in the eighties was, what gave you the the software bug that that got you started and, and continued on on working with with software. The bug that I don't know. It was initially it was necessity, you know. So I, as an un, my undergraduate thesis, dealt with zero growth, which I guess nowadays we would call sustainability. But it it had two parts. One was more conceptual, a review of the literature, and then the other part was an actual 
demographic model, a long-term cohort survival type of thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, how are you going to do that? You have to write the code. So I just wrote the code. And actually the same with space that, you know, in my, uh, for my dissertation, I was looking at different estimation methods and, and doing simulations. And, uh, you know, as, as Levi mentioned, Bill Green at the time at Cornell was on my committee and uh, I needed to figure out how to estimate, uh, implement the maximum likelihood estimator for these spatial models. And he gave me a box of punch cards and he said, here, there's a great um, optimizer in here. That was the beginning of LIMDEP. And I tried this optimizer and sure enough, the parameters jumped out of the acceptable parameter space. The whole thing exploded. So I had to write my own. And so it's just from one to another, you know, I wrote it in Fortran at the time. So and it, it started as a scratch for a niche that you had, but it's at least from an outsider, what it looks like is that progressively it starts getting at some point it jumps from something you needed to get the coefficients you were trying to estimate to a package that you write still on 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 back then Gauss that then becomes space that and and that's just being distributed. And then at some point it jumps from there to a, a pretty state-of-the-art visual, fully connected views software that, that keeps evolving for now over 20 years. At what point did you realize that? this was going to be, or that you wanted this to be part of your profile, that th this is what Luke Canceling was, that people would know you or, or would find some of your work useful in part because of the work you'd done in, in software. That actually never crossed my mind. You know, it's, <laughs> it was just, um, it just happened. You know, I, I wrote space that mostly for myself, actually, you know, as I was uh, writing the 1988 book, the Spatial Econometrics book, I needed code to illustrate the methods because I was um, at that time convinced I needed to show illustrations. So I wrote it in Gauss, which was just up and coming at the time. And it was a matrix language, kind of like MATLAB now. And uh, then I used it for myself and I used it in a class, but those classes were very small. And then people, word got out. I don't know how, but word got out and people started asking me for it. And so then Spacedad actually, at the time, nothing else did what Spacedad did. So it was kind of, you know, and if you wanted to do this stuff, you needed either to write your own or use Spacedad, which is what, what happened. And I was really influenced by a... Uh, I think the person is Haslett. They had a little program on the Mac where they implemented linking and brushing. Hmm. And it was very primitive at the time because the, the, the original little Mac was pixel-based. So it was easy to connect different graphs based on the pixels. Uh, now, most other graphics, you know, are vector-based, so it's not that easy, but... That really, um, I think that was kind of like a, a light bulb moment where I said, oh, this is the way to do it. That's when we started experimenting, you know, with connecting space that to things like ArcView and then, you know, the initial kind of prototype of Geoda and then finally uh, Geoda. And then the, the rest is history, as, 
as they say. Was it always clear to you that software was going to be, well, as they say, they, it would eventually eat the world, that it would end up running seemingly every aspect of our daily lives and that it was important to be, not only to have a presence, but it was important to think very explicitly about how your work could connect and, and could be reflected and in, in some ways supported or, or disseminated further by, by working on, on software. If this was also something that there was no plan and, and you kind of happened to be aligned with one of the biggest technology changes in, in the last century. Yeah, I think that, you know, is just right time, right place, right? <laughs> so the I think what happened, though, is that um, I've always been interested in translating. So mm. making the methods usable uh, for people. And I, I mentioned this before. Um, so when I taught in the summer at ICPSR at the University of Michigan, it was spatial analysis and spatial regression and the audience was you know non-geographers social scientists and they had very spatial questions spatial research questions but they had absolutely no interest in learning a gis or doing anything of the kind so that's kind of where i i started thinking about developing a tool that is not a GIS, but it's kind of like a GIS and in that it does all the dirty work, the mapping and the reprojecting and all that kind of stuff nobody wants to know about, but then also makes the transition to analysis. And, and that's been kind of... Which is you know, ironically the, how if, if you look at modern approaches to GIS, the first rule is don't call it GIS, just make it do the magic so people don't have to know it's a GIS, but it does what they what they want. So it sounds like it was more look the teacher rather than look the technologist that, that got you into, into software and, and tools. Yeah. And, you know, then the software revolution is really something that was you know, mind boggling. I guess if you, uh, it was just uh, lucky that I grew up and um, experienced this transition from boxes to a phone that has more computing power than the supercomputers of the day you know that is just yeah. amazing and how software now is everywhere and drives everything that is that is something that is still kind of mind-boggling yeah so actually jumping more towards today and i'm gonna um i was thinking how to ask you this and it's not really a question it's more it's a thought that that's kind of been recurrent in much of what I've been reading, and, and I'm going to be uh, generous with myself and call me or label me almost within the millennial category. So to me, the world probably looks a little different from uh, for someone than who started like you punching cards. I've never punched cards. I've never written Fortran. I've been fortunately not to. I I think, but. When I look at the technological landscape, particularly as it relates to the world of geospatial, of geography and, and of research, there is code, there is software. But to me, the, the big step seems to be the appearance of more and more data sources of all different kinds, of all different well, sizes is obviously what they've become famous for, but I, I don't necessarily think is the most relevant aspect. But it's definitely, it seems to me that it is the key technology that it's unlocking new ways of thinking, new ways of, 
of doing research and of understanding the world in a way that you could argue that's always been the case. We've always been generating more and more data. But when I look at and when I read about the 80s when you started, the 90s when Giotto kind of became a thing or the 2000s when it went viral, it seems to me that the big technological change then was having computers that had more power, that going back to the famous Steve Jobs quote, this was the, the bicycle for the mind, but the, the bicycle was the computer, not the analogy was the bicycle for the mind. It wasn't the the microscope to look in, into better scales. Do you think that that's true or this is just more my millennial uh, perspective and I'm just taking too much for granted in terms of software? I, I think it's true to a point. Uh, I, I think the questions are fundamental and the questions are still the same. There are some new questions that are facilitated, I think, primarily by the presence of um, both space and time, which has you know, uh, been facilitated. The whole microgeography, that is something that just didn't it did exist, but it was very difficult to access. And so that thinking about space and time together, I think, is, is in my view, in part been driven by the presence of streaming data, you know, very frequent data that have both space and time, I think. Uh, in the physical sciences, of course, this has been the case for a while, you know, with ocean data and weather data, things like that. But in the social sciences, that's fair. I mean, more recent, I should say. But, yeah, and in part, uh, maybe is because the natural sciences have been much more exposed to sensors for a longer time. And and we're now starting to realize that when everyone has a supercomputer in their pocket, maybe we can treat that also as a sensor as well. Yeah, the whole human as a sensor, right? You know, well, indeed, indeed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. Okay, I, I, I have so much that I'd like to cover, and we would we would definitely go over the hour. Before I hand you over to to Rachel for the sad cocktail and and dinner party, I have one one last question, and in some ways relates to this idea of of technology changing and and evolving, and that making science also change and and evolve. And one of the things that that I've noticed, even in in my want to think short career for now is that some of the areas or some of the tricks, some of the skill, the core skills that were very valued in the beginning have been rendered not useless, but not as relevant because they were tricks or works around the fact that computers had 64 kilobytes of memory or the fact that we couldn't process X amount of information or the fact that we didn't have ways of measuring certain phenomena. I was curious, and I wanted to get your views on what which ones are the ones that you think have not become obsolete? Which core elements that were present and relevant when you started linking ArcView with, with um, matrix computation in the 80s are still very much relevant? And you think if we had this conversation in 10, 15 years, would still be important for someone who's trying to get into uh, data science today, geospatial GIS or, or spatial analysis? Yeah, that, that's a tough one. I mean... Uh... What is relevant 10 years from now? Yeah. You know, maybe all the same stuff that is relevant now, or maybe it's totally different. You know, the I think uh, algorithms and data structures, which is basically what computer science is, are very important. And knowing uh, how things are implemented under the hood, if you write your own software, I think is very important. But software is becoming so good and so clever that it's taking a lot of that 
part away from you. I mean, I remember in the beginning of parallel processing, you had to manage everything. You had to manage, you know, how many CPUs, what you assign to which CPU, when to shut them down, when to collect it. Now, it's all automatic. You don't have to worry about that. So maybe there'll be a day where optimizers, solvers are picked automatically as a function, but then you have to write the software to do the picking. So I think, you know, it's it's just a moving target and and ultimately it is all about um solving these kind of mathematical problems in efficient ways depending on the existing infrastructure you know what you had to worry about you know when when i started out i mentioned gauss gauss was limited to 64k of memory that is that was it so if it didn't fit in there you had to figure out a way around it to to deal with that and uh, nowadays, you know, memory RAM, you know, my, my desktop machine has 128 gigabytes of RAM, you know, that's just unheard of even 10 years ago, you know, that was only in supercomputers. So uh, that moves the envelope and allows in a sense us to tackle more challenging problems in the more realistic timeframes. And, you know, I think, not having to go necessarily to a supercomputer infrastructure kind of makes this uh, in a way more democratic if you can do it you know i mean if you could do it on your phone that everybody could uh, tackle it now uh, i think that type of technological evolution is is very hard to predict and even the way the cloud is being used is changing almost on a monthly basis you know there's a new startup with a new um trick or a new gimmick or a new way of moving data around and, and cleaning it or not cleaning it or, you know, so I think the problems remain there, uh, good fundamentals in understanding algorithms and how the data are stored in different data structures, how that is manipulated. And then of course, you know, I know Julia's there, my, my pet thing is solid foundation in linear algebra. <laughs> so like a fitting way of, uh, leaving it out there and I'll hand you over to Rachel. Okay. So Luke is already a little bit in on the game, but I just want to take a moment to explain to the audience what's going to happen now in case they weren't here for the previous interview. And I should say thanks, Luke, for being willing to play along. Hopefully everyone that we interview will be willing to do this because I, I think it helps give a little bit of a different perspective on the people that we're interviewing. So to liven things up, not that we thought it was going to be needed, we invited Luke to imagine that he's been invited to a dinner party, a sad dinner party. And our original inspiration for this part of the interview comes from Desert Island Discs, which you're probably familiar with if you live in the UK. But it's a radio show that asks guests to imagine themselves as castaways. And our thinking was that maybe after a year of pandemic isolation, a lot of us are already feeling marooned on an island. And so what we really want is interaction. So what I asked Luke for on his dinner party invitation was four people as dinner companions, a book in case he gets bored and has to entertain himself. I did ask him what he might like to eat. So we'll check in with that. And then for the after dinner conversation, um, one nugget of wisdom, one regret one fortuitous event, and one formative memory or experience. And so just to get us started, Luke, maybe you could tell us who you would have around the table with you at your sad dinner party. 
Okay, yeah. So I I did watch the Mike Batty interview, and I noticed that Mike Batty was, um, I should say, aspirational in his invitations, and that he invited people that he had never met but would like to talk to. And I'm not going to do that. I I like to be comfortable at dinner, so I'm inviting yeah. <laughs> people that I know really well. And first one is Emily Talon, who's my wife. <laughs> And uh, who I also work with a lot. Uh, I'm her research assistant, basically. So uh, I do the the data crunching for her. Uh, Serge Ray, who was my uh, first uh, PhD student at UC Santa Barbara and uh, colleague and good friend and I've known forever, basically. Uh, Julia Kuczynski, who's... Uh, now the executive director of the Center for Spatial Data Science, but was um, part of our ventures since the uh, Urbana days where she was in the spatial analysis lab. And she also did her PhD with me. And then Alan Murray, who was part of the same crew in um, Santa Barbara. I was on his committee. I wasn't his chair, but Rick Church was, but uh, Alan and I also go way back and actually the four of us go way back. So <laughs> it would certainly be lively conversation, I would think, knowing most of these people. Do you have a sense of what maybe you would talk about since you probably have had many, many meals with these people? Yes, I have. <laughs> I, I think one one of the recent thoughts and, and, and Julia has been really instrumental in this and Serge has been, I know, thinking about this as well is... I, I would like to call it what is special about spatial. And so how do we actually learn things that are not obvious? How do we can and how and can we tie this into more of a philosophy of science perspective? You know, what what is there about the spatial that um, needs specialist attention? Now, I've always felt that, you know, in my gut, but how to actually make it more formal and make that argument is something that I think we've all been thinking about. And uh, I think it's very important because when, you know, not everybody is spatial friendly out there in the world. And in fact, yeah. you know, I would say the majority is not spatial friendly. They say, oh yeah, well, that's just a special case. There's nothing you really have to worry about. Now, I, I don't, accept that position. I think there is something special, but then how to make the point uh, is actually not that easy. And um, how to come up with meaningful examples that are not just, here's a data set, push the buttons, or there's your Lisa map, we're done, right? But okay, what, what do we see in here? What do we discover in here that we didn't know already, you know, that is not obvious? You know, a lot of what we discover you know, I guess as I get older and I review papers, uh, often I think to myself, okay, why bother? You know, I knew this already. Yeah, sure. It's a little more formal and it's a little more refined. But at the end of the day, you know, we're just proving the obvious. So uh, what can we do to change that? That's, I think, is a kind of a challenge to the field, actually, not just, you know, yeah. to our dinner guests. <laughs> yeah, right. So I was thinking, and I was looking at your guests, and I, I'm still sort of articulating the question in my head, but Emily, having Emily at dinner with you, uh, that's a little, that's special. And we haven't really touched on anything personal in the interview, but there is, um, you know, there are people who have partners who 
are not in their profession, you know, and there are people who have partners who are in their profession. And then there's the category of people who have partners who are sort of in their profession. So an academic partner with whom you do research. And I wonder, and then, and then there's probably the additional category of you're given four seats at a table and you invite your partner. So that's using up, you know, a valuable, it's using up valuable real estate for somebody that you see every day. So I don't know. I wonder if if you could just give us maybe a little bit of perspective on what that has meant maybe over the course of your career to work closely with someone to whom you're partnered in other parts of your life and how it shapes decisions. I, I think this is something that maybe especially for younger people who are starting out, you know, it's an it's unusual and interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's not easy, you know, professionally. I think this day and age, it's it's a lot harder than it was when uh, you know, in my days, there still were spousal hires. Now, most places don't have that anymore. Or, you know, so um, it was possible for us um, to move together. You know, Emily started later. She, uh, you know, she worked as a planner for several years before she went back to school to get a PhD at Santa Barbara. So um, after Santa Barbara is when she started working and publishing and writing. And it's kind of a, a, a good fit, I think, because I tend to be more methodological in my perspective. You know, not, not that it doesn't matter what I study, but they're mostly data issues. Uh, how do you bring space into this? And then she is working on issues of sustainable cities, uh, diverse cities, you know, uh, Real things, you know, right, I mean, right, right. <laughs> and so I often come into play uh, to, you know, where we talk about it and then she has this kind of data issues or how do we do this? And that's that's where I come into play, because I often see kind of an angle, you know, and, and the most recent example is we she was i actually was not involved in that paper but she was working with a postdoc on something looking for clusters of blocks and so these were parcel data for chicago and she asked me well how would you do this and it's oh yeah i think that is just you know use the g statistic uh get a sort statistic in geoda you can do it in geoda but then i did it in geoda and it didn't make sense so then mm-hmm. i started thinking well this doesn't quite work you know you have to kind of finesse it a little bit and that became the local joint count statistic who which we only compute when you actually have a one the g statistic does it for everything so it counts the zeros as well which is not useful for that particular application Mm -hmm. so that's a case where it was actually symbiotic i mean i helped her out with her paper and then out of that came an idea of refining a method and then, of course, implementing it in Geoda and things like that. So a lot of our work is is like that. And the latest uh, paper <laughs> is we call it the diversity paper. It's about <laughs> diversity of cities and uh, measuring that in different ways. And that was a real challenge, you know, uh, in terms of data crunching. And we're looking at 60 years of data you know, so uh, I actually harmonized the census tracts over that because all the harmonized data sets go back to 1970. This was 1950. And it, it was 
actually fascinating to see it was for Chicago, how a city like Chicago has changed in 60 years and in some aspects has not changed. Yeah. And and that to me is fascinating. But then, you know, that, you know, what, what she does really brings up research questions for me. Yeah. And then I'm, as I said, her research assistant, you know, she says, you know, how do I do this? So, <laughs> well, you told me that you wouldn't get bored at dinner and you wouldn't need a book. No. Um, so I'm going right. to hold that. I'm, I'm going to hold that because you did give me a book just in case. Um, but I wanted to make sure that we had time to talk about the nuggets of wisdom. And I, and I asked you for a formative experience. And I wonder if we could just start with that. Yeah, I mean, it's memorable, I think, and, yeah. and partially formative. It's um, actually when Andy Isserman who was a good friend, passed away about 10 years ago. He was recruiting me to go to West Virginia. And, and at the time I was at Santa Barbara, most people would say, you're crazy to go to West Virginia. And maybe, but not really, because he was running this regional research institute, which was a real gem. You know, at the time it was in a separate building. It was this, it had this fantastic library because the regional, the International Regional Science Review, which I ended up, editing with Andy for many years, did this summary of journal articles. And this is before internet, right? So the only way to do that is to actually have all the journals. And Andy was a fantastic salesperson. So he managed to talk all these publishers into giving him free copies of the journals. So the RRI had this fantastic library for anything urban and regional. And so Andy and I walked up Cooper's Rock in the snow in uh, in in Morgantown uh, as he was recruiting me talking about the future of regional science and that just really sticks in my memory as as something very memorable and in a sense formative in terms of thinking about the bigger picture type of thing yeah. do you remember yeah. what you talked about as being the future of regional science well it was there was tension there you know because it was mostly about you know what is regional science what has it become you know it, it there was Walter Isaac's vision in the beginning which is kind of this new social science which obviously was not going to happen by that time you know and he had just written the kind of a 40 year vision of regional science and he was very skeptical and uh, i think I mean, I don't really fully remember, but I think that he still thought it was possible to define something as regional science. And I was less convinced. Would you say I, I was, the same now? I, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm still, guessing we have, we have over 100 people um, today, and I'm guessing that for a lot of them, regional science isn't something that they even know that much about. And so it's interesting to think how much in terms of spatial analysis and data, the analytics of social science, anything spatial used to be really regional science. And that isn't so much the case anymore, probably. Yeah, I think it's, it's just one of those things, you know, some of these um, interdisciplinary fields and departments pick up and, and regional science had a really good run, I think, with Penn and Cornell and then various program like offshoots in Europe. And I think it's still, you know, yeah. much bigger in Europe and Asia and other places than it is in the US, which is much more disciplinary in, in a sense and disciplinary in kind of a bad way in that, you know, you are an economist, you are a sociologist. And if you are an economist, you this is how you write a paper. 
if you write a sociologist, this is how you write a paper. And right. they may be about the same topic, but they're very different papers. So yeah. I never fit into that ever, still don't, you know, and, and that was uh, welcoming of regional science, because at least in Isard's view, he didn't want to be in other economics. He wanted to be something different that had, of course, very strong ties to economics, but also to physics or to other things at the, in the end, biology, you know, he right. was thinking about all these other ways of thinking about the world that were relevant yeah. to spatial problems, but it, it never took off institutionally. Right. You know? No, that's for sure. So I can see that we're slowly running out of time, but I really want to just cover a couple more of these if we could. Your piece of wisdom, I wonder if that you could share that with the audience. Yeah, my piece of wisdom is no regrets. <laughs> <laughs> it's really the, just make a decision and move on. You know, <laughs> that's probably the shortest, most succinct piece of advice that we're likely to get in this entire series, and it pairs very interestingly with uh, the question that I asked you about an accident or fortuitous circumstance. So far, no accidents. <laughs> yeah, but probably lots of fortuitous circumstances. I mean, yeah. thinking about how you ended up in economics in the beginning, that, that seemed to me almost fortuitous that you happen to have a family member who does something sort of related. And Yeah, a lot of fortuitous type of things that, you know, kind of happened. I mean, everybody goes through this in their life. You know, I could have been somebody, right? I, if If only I had done this other thing, right? <laughs> you know, it could have been a soccer player, <laughs> right? but you know, it's, uh, yeah, uh, these things happen, but I think the, uh, there's no point thinking and saying, if only I had done this or that, uh, you know, you move on, you learn from your mistakes. You're going to make mistakes. Everybody yeah. makes mistakes. And, you know, the thing is to build on to that and just as long as you're happy and I've, Basically, I'm incredibly spoiled that my whole life I've been doing what I like to do. You know, it doesn't seem like work. You know, who has that? That's just, I mean, yeah. I could have been maybe a doctor or an engineer or something else, but, or an attorney, you know, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's just my hobby is my work. Yeah, I feel that way too, most of the time. So there were a couple of bits about books in this. There's the books in case you get bored, but... In Desert Island Discs, castaways over time have been told that they can choose a book to bring, but then they'll always be given the Bible and the complete works of Shakespeare. So that's, I think, supposed to be the canon of Western culture. And so I asked you what you would consider to be the sort of the canon of spatial analysis and data, the sad canon, what two books you think should just be at every dinner yeah. party. It's actually very difficult, I, I think. I I had no problem picking what I gave you as the second book, which is, you know, um, Computer Age Statistical Inference that came out a couple of years ago by Efren and Hasty, which I think is really, um, for data science, uh, a critical book, is to think about, you know, we're all brought up with classical statistics, you know, p-values and all these things, like it's sacred, right? As it turns out, if you do a hundred thousand simulations, that stuff becomes pretty meaningless. So then how do you actually still learn from the data? How do you still quantify uncertainty, which is what statistics is about? And how do you do that in a computer world, which I think is is pretty uh, critical. The other book I, I, 
I was wavering. You know, I picked Cliffinord spatial processes. I almost picked uh, Berry and Marble, which is the the earlier spatial analysis book, or Noel Cressy's, but Noel Cressy is maybe not that accessible. Let's put it that way. It <laughs> requires a certain background. <laughs> But in terms of the coverage, you know, that is really fundamental to uh, spatial analysis. Yeah, I'm thinking that what we really need is a sad library. Tell us what you eat at dinner. Oh, what I eat at, at that dinner, right? That's it's a sad, special sad. dinner. I'll, yes. I'll have veal piccata, which is my favorite, even though I'm basically a vegetarian. And you ask for dessert, I'll have creme brulee. Sounds fantastic. And so I'm going to turn it back over to Emmanuel now. Uh, thank you very much, Look, Very interesting discussion. We have a few questions for you on the chat, and I will start with uh, the first one, which has to do about innovation. So Jenny Williams asks, how do you think COVID might have affected innovation? Are you planning any more innovation research? Innovation, I think the effect of COVID is actually exaggerated. Of course, it is major on society in terms of the number of deaths, the number of people who have been uh, sick and are still sick, that is something we cannot uh, ignore. But just being locked up at home doesn't mean you stop thinking and doesn't mean you stop coming up with new ideas. So I, I, I think maybe in the short run, there are some logistical issues um, adjusting to hopefully back to a more or less normal world. But in terms of the intellectual vigor, I often make the case, you know, how did the flu pandemic in the early 20th century affect innovation or affect whatever? And it did not. I mean, a lot of people died, which is terrible. And I think it did affect how we thought about pandemics and how we thought about the diseases and the spread of diseases and vaccination and public health policies, I think that will be the major impact of COVID is that we are no longer naive about this and we start um, eyes wide open, right? And I think that that is going to be the major impact. Maybe we'll be getting used to wearing masks on a plane or things like that. But in terms of intellectual thinking, innovation, I, you know, if you're, it might even be better, you know, in my case, I love working at home, you know, not having to deal with regular meetings and things like that. And I try to stay away from Zoom as much as I can. <laughs> I have another question from uh, Antonio Paez. He's asking about regional science. He says that uh, regional science was probably seen by its founders as a destination. But I think, he says, that it probably was more like an interesting crossroads until it was not that realistic anymore. Where do you see spatial analysis happening uh, in the future? Is there a home for it, or will it just become increasingly diffused? That is actually a, a good point, and that is, I, I remember this was a, a major point of discussion even way back when at NCGIA in Santa Barbara, the National Center for Geographic Information and Analysis. So the, uh, you know, basically, I think the way Mike Goodchild put it is if GIS is everything, you know, 
I'm not paraphrasing it correctly, but basically GIS brings everything together. So is it still its own discipline or does it become part of everything else? So, you know, you cannot be a proper economist unless you know GIS, that, that kind of evolution, which is not happening. Uh, but um, I think we're kind of in between there where spatial analysis in some places institutionally has been um, separated or separate and uh, and becomes its own thing. In other places, there's reluctance to do that. And different, I call them mainstream disciplines, are adopting or co-opting parts of the spatial analysis agenda. I mean, in the end, what does it matter, right? It doesn't really matter because as long as the ideas are there, as long as the relevance of the research questions are there, honestly, I don't care whether the person addressing this wears an economics hat or a geographer hat or a planner hat, you know, it doesn't really matter. But it's true that Isart's initial idea was that regional science would be that home and institutionally would be kind of the new economic geography and the new spatial economics combined and taken out of geography and taken out of economics. But that didn't happen. In in contrast, I think uh, these kind of questions have been reinvigorated in the mainstream disciplines, you know, with a lot of reinventing of the wheel. But, you know, we take that with it. Sure, sure. There is a question in the chat asking for sort of perspective on uh, spatial analysis in the short term. So if these debates are things you see going on now, can you maybe talk a little bit about the locus of those things? It's uh, It gets very political and it depends on the university, the university culture. I think some places are more open to starting new interdisciplinary ventures. I think the the combination of spatial analysis with computer science, I think, is very, you know, you call it spatial data science, geographic data science, is a, a very, uh, has a lot of future and a lot of prospect. Whether that is its own entity or part of geography or part of computer science, that's, I think, a question for each institution to address. Some institutions are more stovepipe than others, you know, so... But, you know, I think that is that is where the action is. And, you know, when I discovered a few years ago that I was a data scientist, you know, <laughs> you know, I started reading these things and I said, oh, this is what I've been doing my whole life. So I'm a data scientist now. So uh, let's call it the Center for Spatial Data Science. But, you know, I think that's where the action is. And, and again, where exactly that ends up, whether that I think some geography departments have embraced it. And uh, personally, I think that's a very healthy thing to do, given academic politics. Um, uh, others have not, and then it's more diffused and, uh, you know, maybe uh, not as strong. You know, it, it's, uh, you know, I've always, when I ran the school at, at Arizona State, I always thought that was a very important part of how we stood apart from others and how we had our own identity, in addition of, of course, of the traditional parts of geography, physical geography, and so on. But 
I think the the data science part where you bring the space and the frontal, fundamental computer science concepts together is a strength that geography can have. It doesn't necessarily have it, but it can have it. And it, I don't see computer science embracing it. In um, most of my uh, conversations with computer scientists, space is, is not important enough to be in and of itself. It's kind of, you know, edge case. Yeah. yeah, I think with that, we'll probably wrap up here. Um, but we just wanted to make sure, you know, thank you very much for uh, today's conversation. Thank you, Emmanuel, for uh, emceeing. And thank you, Luke. And we'll uh, see you all You're again welcome. this week. <clears throat> yeah. Thank you, Luke. Forth. Thank you, everyone. Nice thank to you see you all. Thank you very much. Bye, folks. Take care.